Hey guys, welcome to the Unleash podcast brought to you by Hidden Gen, where we talk about how to unleash your hidden potential. I'm your host, Yuri Diorgenes, and we have a great episode for you today, uh, featuring Diego Diaz. Thank you for being on, Diego, today. Thank you. Uh, it's awesome to be here. First time doing a podcast. Awesome. <laughs> Before we jump into today's topics, we would like to invite you to subscribe to your podcast uh, on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can always uh, find these podcasts in our website, hiddengin.net. And if you live in the area and you have not been at Hidden Gin, make sure to visit hiddengin.net and get a free trial. And with that, let's uh, talk to Diego today. Diego, you've been uh, all over the place as far as sports, uh, bodybuilding, strongman, uh, now jiu-jitsu, um, so a lot of things to talk about. But um, one of the things that I've noticed that you've done probably for a long time is really prioritize uh, mobility. Even when you were transitioning between bodybuilding, powerlifting, and, and doing that stuff, you always kept a good mobility program. Um, why is that? Um, I'd say my education has increased exponentially since the first day we met, that's for sure. But um, I guess foam rolling is kind of one of the first things that I picked up on when I started entering the whole fitness world. And it just felt good uh, intuitively. It just felt like uh, the way to maintain proper recovery and not feel so beat up at, for the next session. Um, other than that, though, um, that just uh, grew from there on that end. I just stretching and foam rolling just seemed like a good way to not get injured, which I've not perfected seemingly because I am riddled with pains and aches right now as well. <laughs> well, but now with jujitsu, uh, um, and this is something that I, I say to, to my professor many times that I was never really, I never really got injury uh, when I was actively bodybuilding and uh, as soon as I started jiu-jitsu I started to get injury and it, it's just tough because uh, when you are lifting heavy you, everything gets tight when you go to jiu-jitsu you have to get loose so that's where I, I feel like you end up getting more injuries uh, yeah jiu-jitsu um, ironically called the gentle art <laughs> is um, can be pretty um detrimental on the body sometimes but uh like anything else it's a fun fun activity to learn definitely rewarding when when you get stuff right and uh, uh, you you said that you start with foam rolling and uh, things like that but you evolve since then what you are doing most as far as mobility work so yeah i mean as my uh knowledge grew about the whole concept of recovery and mobility and how that plays into fitness and movement um I just realized that there was a lot more to building muscle than just putting excessive amounts of load on the body day in, day out. It just kind of became um, so, uh, kind of almost a, a side hobby of mine to practice and look into what are good stretch techniques, what's a, a good warm-up routine for each specific workout, or um, how can I just maintain a healthier body uh, over the long term because uh, that's where it started going with it because mo most of what I've learned with mobility and uh, proper functional movement patterns has been through 
the injuries that I would incur over my time doing the various amounts of sports that I've done. But um, like, I remember my knees, even uh, before I went to Metroflex or did anything like that, I had terrible knees growing up as a kid. I uh, grew up very overweight, um, bordering morbidly obese at 14 years old. And I could barely run a mile without being incredibly gassed and my knees would be on fire. Mm. And when I uh, finally found weightlifting, that issue was still very apparent. And um, so I just had to educate myself. I just went full on into trying to find all the text, all the literature on how the body works and how can I keep my knees from exploding. That was one of the, really the first things that came to mind when I started learning about mobilities, preventative maintenance all the way. Wow, that's amazing because the way that you squat nowadays, uh, the depth that you that you have, is is quite amazing to think that you start in such a bad place. Uh, so for people that are struggling to have the left level of depth on on on, on squat, there is hope, right? <laughs> Oh my goodness, absolutely. And there would be moments of realization myself where I'd be thinking back to times where my knees were so bad, I literally thought like, I don't I don't even know if I could legitimately squat ever again. I'd have days like that. And um, it was just through repetitive effort and constant reading up on the information, how to get myself uh, back together again. There's even more um, information out there now in just the last five years alone that, uh, have further improved my knowledge on being able to rehab myself, which um, is big onto what I do with my clients now. Not only have I been able to see things work on myself, but I've applied it to the people that I train and they have been the biggest blessing to me in regards to my uh, educational experience because what I've learned works on them. Mm -hmm. And that's been the biggest part for me in realizing that I'm onto something. There. Now, when you were doing yourself to improve your squat and everything how do did you deal with uh, pain because i'm pretty sure that in the beginning it was quite painful right yes i mean it felt like my patella tendons were going to pop off <laughs> yeah. you know i i couldn't i still avoid the leg press to be honest to this day because i have yet to find one that doesn't make my knees feel horrible after i get off really of it. well but, interesting um, so you don't feel pain on squat but you feel on leg press a lot actually and i haven't given it a fair chance in like the last couple of years to be honest but um for me and just the way my leg length may be it was just the the direction that a leg press puts your body in it's very straightforward of course but i think that there's actually a natural curve that that must occur that unfortunately being in a seated position like that it just puts a more shearing force over my knees that uh, otherwise I can do more fluidly when I'm standing upright in a free weight position. Interesting, because I feel exactly the other way to me. My <laughs> knees yeah. are, uh, works, I can put a lot of weight on leg press, but I just can't on squat. Uh, it, it hurts, right? Um, the, I, fe I feel leg press a little bit more comfortable. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the beauty, right? It will vary according to each person. Absolutely. And I would say to that is um, the interesting part about machines and how they can be useful is how you can manipulate your position a little more. Mm. You can put your feet up a little higher on the platform. So that takes the load off of uh, your knees moving forward. 
so you don't have to kind of worry about that too too much so i mean yeah uh, that's something that um i definitely when i first started bodybuilding that was a part of it but to answer your question though the way that i mitigated a lot of those issues was i well luckily the gym we both frequented uh had some very intelligent people in mm -hmm. there and uh troy scoggins i'll shout him out he's he's somebody that taught me a lot of concepts in lifting and uh one of them was pause squats i mean as straightforward as it sounds just taking the time to be humble and make lightweight heavy that's um something i worked with and uh long negatives three second negatives going down in the squat very slow learning to brace my core while i do it um all of those things just expanded on themselves as far as concepts for me and that allowed me to develop more knowledge on how to fix myself in regards to being able to pre uh, perform full squats. And, and uh, the pause squat, uh, in which moment of the lift do you pause? On when you reach 90 degrees or you pause every certain amount of time? Because uh, I'm not really sure everyone knows about the pause squat and I think it's quite interesting. So that's actually an awesome question because of the fact that I've done all angles. I've programmed it with people and I've done it myself. I'll go and straightforward. It's just a quarter of the way down. You pause, um, I 90 degrees or below parallel. You pause there, and then you pause uh, three quarters of the way back up before you complete the lift. That would be like one of the most drawn out type of pause squats that I've done in the past. So But two two pause on the way down and one pause on the way up. Correct. And um, but otherwise, very straightforward, simple one is just pausing when you go to 90 degrees or below and then coming back up. So only one pause in the whole lift. And how, for how long that pause, like two seconds, maybe? I've done a literally probably counting the 10. So it, it's always been in various loads, but and various timings. But otherwise, my whole goal whenever I was performing those was feeling the absolute most tension that I could in regards to bracing, holding my spine fully aligned over my toes, uh, feeling that I have full stability of the position, that I'm owning it. I'm not just trying to passively sit into the bottom. I'm holding it tight and that I can come up with force uh, without any pains. So that is not really necessary uh, a magic number there, right? It's two, two seconds, three seconds, doesn't really matter that much. No, ultimately, I mean, it depends on the context of what your goal is, uh, what your goal is, but um, ultimately it's, are you controlling the lift? No mm. matter how long you're doing it. Because there's some people that you can say they paused, but it, it looks like they came straight back up and it looked more like a bounce, you know? So that's less controlled. You're relying on stretch reflex, not really uh, stopping momentum in that. So that's what the biggest point of all of that is is ensuring that you're not falling into the movement and bouncing out of it that you're controlling the bottom pausing for two three whatever many seconds you like and then coming back up and and on the pause on the pause squat do you do uh, a lot of reps or the reps also vary the reps would vary but i'd say um and this just it's a more of a challenge than um proper work than anything but uh i've done up to like sets of 15 pausing every single one things like that but uh more rehabilitative or strength oriented would be you know around the five rep range and what will be the main benefit of doing that is for is for hypertrophy is for more for 
stability you know what what is the main benefit of doing pole squat in your in your vision so um in my opinion all of the above the um, you can utilize it for strength you can definitely utilize it for rehabilitative work you can most certainly utilize it for uh, hypertrophy because a lot of hypertrophy is about time under tension pausing is that in itself so all of them it, yeah. it, it's good for all just rep ranges will dictate which one you're more gearing toward yeah because there's a as you know there's a, a lot of myth that in order to grow legs you have to go heavy right so when you do pause squat you you cannot go heavy you you're gonna go you know relat relatively light so you still you believe that even with light weight you can still grow i'd say with a a caveat to that that with lightweight sure but as long as you are progressively lifting more weight doing more reps or more sets or even less time something has to change in regards to its uh overall difficulty or just intensity volume any of that it has to be able to progress in some form doing the same weight week in week out even if you're making it difficult um eventually you're going to stall out it has to get harder in some form Mm-hmm. Interesting. Do you do also, have you tried to apply the same concept for other muscle groups, like doing bench press or uh, curls? Um, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, all of the above on that as well. And that's um, uh, besides pausing, slow controlled movement patterns. Um, that's something that was kind of ingrained into me in the bodybuilding world. You know, slow negatives, feel the muscle. And uh, that broadened my horizon on understanding proper technique and movement patterns. I was forced after a certain point of bodybuilding to be a technical aficionado because my joints were just killing me. I would see the intensity that, you know, all those hardcore bodybuilders would be doing Branch Warren, Ronnie Coleman, all the big guys. And um, I wanted to replicate that, you know, and I'm 19, 20 years old like just screaming my head off i mean I, i think back to that now i was silly but um willpower was I, uh, definitely there but the technique mastery was most certainly not and i paid for that and um now that's where i just started going strictly into am i doing it correctly i tried to get my ego out of it as much as possible when i could it is interesting that you said your joints were suffering because you were so young usually when you are that young you don't have really joint problem for the you most part you think so right no i, I got <laughs> dealt a bad card on that when i was feeling joint problems at 17 years old wow it's Jeez. not good yeah that's definitely not good because i'm i'm 47 and and i feel a lot of joint but i mean i'm 47 right so i when i was 19 i really didn't have that problem for sure but i also was not living as heavy as you um you did pretty good uh, for your weight and the way your body is uh, structured when you were doing some powerlifting. You had some really uh, powerful liftings uh, on the deadlift and everything. Thank you. Do, you. do you still, you know, because it feels good to lift that amount of weight. Do you miss that or, or you are okay lowering the weight and doing more control exercise nowadays because your goal has changed over the time i guess for me um i'm not totally in my mind canceling out that i'll never do that again but uh because i do miss it that was such a, a high 
for yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, you know, to be able to move something that looks like immovable, yeah. oh man, um, unless you've done it, you won't understand it. Like mm -hmm. pulling that truck, you know, things like that. It's And uh, for anybody that doesn't know, we've pulled semi trucks and that's, that's a good time yeah but uh yeah. it's and lift, lifting those uh huge uh, atlas uh, rock uh oh yeah which strong is part, part by strongman stuff you've done all of that that you don't miss that because yeah, i don't see you doing that anymore yeah partially because of accessibility there's not many gyms that carry that um equipment like that for where i'm located at but uh as well yeah it was just something that um all of it is so stressful on the joints and unless I was truly making a goal to, you know, compete and I do want to be competitive at it. I never wanted to do it just passively necessary. Not that it wasn't fun, but I knew the toll that it took on my body. So, uh, not doing it for a legitimate purpose. I figured I can definitely, um, save that for another time if I want, come back to it. But, um, I don't have to, I don't have to be married to that form of training. Because um, I was, I'm also just a nerd when it comes to uh, movement and everything around it. So I am uh, all about learning other areas of fitness. As a matter of fact, right after my strongman days, um, I got a, I started off as a student in ballroom dancing, and then uh, eventually, because they required people that had physical fitness to become teachers, um, they hired me on to become an instructor. So uh, I taught ballroom dancing for like a year. Oh, wow. That I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the fun part about that was that I literally was able to take a lot of what I learned in the gym and apply it to the students that I gained at uh, the dance studio. And because these were a lot of people that were 50 and up and they just um, they had lost a lot of their movement patterns because most of them were sedentary and had nine to fives. So uh, we'd be teaching them spins, you know, and eventually yeah. when you want to spin on the ground fluidly, um, you have to come up on one foot and I was able to learn the act. Uh, there's an axis point that you want to align your body posturally. And they taught us that in the training. I was like, Oh my God, that applies to the gym and what we do with some of these things. And I could explain it to my students and it would be like a switch was flipped when I was able to break it down to them on this, uh, real basic level that, that was unique to what the other instructors were able to do my students were picking up movement patterns faster than what they had seen before. That was so fascinating to me. I was realizing, oh my gosh, I can actually teach people um, something outside of fitness per se, but that still applies because I, ha I have such a, a nerd uh, desire to learn the most nuanced details of this stuff. And that just blows my mind. And it was so much fun in that time, but uh, yeah. just a year. So that was good. It is probably when you start practicing jujitsu with so much hip movement, you were like, oh, I remember that. Absolutely. Right? That too. You know, just staying <laughs> light on your feet. And, you know, I've dabbled in like some Muay Thai classes and stuff like that. And um, it was the exact same thing. You know, you got to stay light. You got to move your trajectory, your whole body. You know, it, it, your whole body is one thing. Now, with the, all the knowledge that you have, being through all the sports uh, that you competed in the past now transition to jiu-jitsu did you uh change your training uh the, your weight training to really be more beneficial to your jiu-jitsu game or you continue to have a different training doesn't really match with your jiu-jitsu or you were able to create this like this new 
um, program that benefits you in the match? So I will say I definitely uh, tailor about 80% of my training to jujitsu now, for sure. Because I've already been injured in jujitsu, unfortunately, and it's just from uh, the some ligament weakness in my knees and the awkward positions we get into, that kind of stuff has led to some uh, issues, but nothing too traumatic. But uh, my training is basically surrounded around uh, being able to strengthen my knees. You know, so I do a lot of sled drags, uh, backwards movements, um, even uh, now running. I'm picking running back up a lot because being able to do that fluidly, uh, building up your cardio, but also it does strengthen your knees under the right conditions. If you mm -hmm. have your technique correct and you know how to do uh, just maneuver your pattern when running, that can actually strengthen your knees. So I'm doing uh, that as well, just calisthenic style movements, strengthening my wrist, uh, grip, you know, all the stuff that- So no more isolated exercise? Uh, no, no isolated. Um, I rarely, if ever, do like a single bicep curl anymore. I'm doing things that are related to it. You know, if I'm doing pull-ups, a reverse grip pull-up is gonna be the closest I'm getting to direct bicep work in that mm. regard. Like. Um, because now, and it's what, you bring what, that what about what about back? Back exercise probably is very beneficial. Right? I mean, even oh, absolutely, athletes. and um, yeah. So, and with my uh, the way I'm now managing my own training, I'm trying to actually get um, because jujitsu for me right now, whether I'm a spazzy blue belt or not, um, <laughs> it wears me out. You know, I am dead, and I'm doing jujitsu three, four, five days a week. Um, that pulls a lot of energy away from being able to train hard in the gym. Yes. So what I'm uh, what I'm now trying to do with my workouts is try to get the most out of the least possible. What I'm uh, like with sled drags, I'm pulling, I'm going up to five, six hundred pounds on the sled, dragging it backwards, and then I'll accompany that with like a, an explosive, a row and pull with the sled. If you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah I do. Yes, yeah, so um, things that will um, carry over to jiu-jitsu, you know, with explosive movement patterns, um, doing bear crawls, body weight push-ups, handstands, cartwheels, little things that uh, are building explosivity, stability. I do a lot of balance work, kettlebells. So um, I'm never really utilizing machines too, too much. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I was noticing. No machines, it looks like. Yeah, and um, that's a, a philosophy I'm kind of building for myself. Not that I'm totally against them, but um, I kind of have noticed when I'm, and it, I've learned it more from training my clients than anything. And I've, from what I've learned with my clients, I've even brought it to my own training, is that when I'm trying to teach my people how to move in general, a lot of my people are just trying to go for longevity's sake. They're not trying to become bodybuilders. Mm -hmm. So um, what I've learned with them is I teach them how to breathe and the processes that we go about that, it's all body weight. It'll be on the ground or lying on their back or they're standing on one leg. We're developing those types of uh, controls and that is completely void of isolation. So, and what that's taught me is um, machines don't teach you how to actually get your body to move as one functional unit. They are, as we call it, isolating a certain area of the body. And usually it'll entail that you're sitting down on a bench leaning against a pad or something that is can actually if you're not aware will take away your ability to actually functionally control your core breathe correctly with the movement 
which is uh, something I think uh, a lot of people actually take it uh, take for granted when it comes to proper execution of movement is their breathing and their bracing capabilities. Interesting, interesting. But there are there is, there is time and place for everything. Absolutely, uh, because yeah. because because I believe that you still have clients where you going you are going to make them use a machine, right? And we have, you know, um, cables we utilize a lot and uh, certain like, I do like some of the prime uh, back machines because they do help you uh, just keep it to where we want for the back muscle and mm -hmm. things like that. But um, I think contextually, if, uh, if you want your client to build muscle, that's one thing. But uh, if you want them to be able to move with a fluid walking gait and not have a slouched posture um, what I'll do instead of a back machine, for instance, is I'll have them uh, stand in a squatted, half bent over inclined position where they, they need to use their core to support their posture while they're rowing the weight, for instance, like a, like bent over dumbbell rows, things okay. that are free weight okay. or with a cable, just because um, that in itself is going to force you to have to stabilize your core, um, anti-rotation, stability within each leg. And then I'll vary it up uh, while they'll do a staggered stance, you know, a split leg position. That's just demanding more of one side. So we're working, you know, transverse plane, frontal plane, uh, trying to ensure that we're just teaching them how to move fluidly and control. Uh, going back to your um, workout routine um, tailored to jiu-jitsu, uh, yeah. I know some of some people that they actually train with weights three times a week only. The rest of the week is only jujitsu. Are you training every day uh, with weights nowadays or no? Not every day, uh, usually because of schedule and other things, but I'd say for sure um, three days uh, minimum, but usually getting in four for sure. And uh, with jujitsu, scheduling has been difficult uh, lately in that regard as well, but I definitely try to get in at least three sessions a week there. I definitely need to be but getting do more. You, do you alternate, for example, on the day that you roll, you don't train with weights, or do you, do you try to uh, do separate days for each? I definitely try to do separate days. So I would be essentially kind of almost training every day. But with the way my schedule's been, um, if I have to double up, I'll definitely do a jujitsu session in the afternoon, and then I weight train in the evening or a run, whatever it may be. And what about the recovery? Because uh, training twice a day is is a pretty beat Hard. on your body, right? Yeah. So what do you do for recovery? Um, definitely, first and foremost, I make sure that I go to bed on time. Like, uh, <laughs> that's one of the biggest ones for me. That's what I've noticed. I'm a different person if I haven't slept. You know, physically, but, mentally. But, but we know that Hidden Gene has a lot of uh, also um, other business inside the gym such as uh, massage and other things do you do any type of uh, active massage uh, one, at least once a month or something to lose your body a little bit more you know uh, dry needle whatever uh, type of uh, recovery i've definitely uh, been utilizing massage um as of late i've gone about three sessions in like the last three months so um that's something i'm definitely uh utilizing as well i would recommend massages uh not as if you have the time to do one weekly that is awesome i mean your schedule must be amazing then but um i would say mostly what i do for recovery is i use a sauna make sure i, I sleep well my food that is huge if i'm eating 
uh, very inflammatory, high carbohydrate, uh, processed type of foods. Um, my knees hurt terribly. My ankles are stiff. My shoulders are stiff. You know, it's, um, so um, every little bit of it has a compounding effect. I mean, even how I train in the gym will affect how I perform in jujitsu. That's why um, everything I do in the gym is just basically recuperative uh, to ensure that I can perform in jujitsu. Yeah, and you brought a good point about uh, um, diet. Uh, since you've been into really high stuff uh, as far as diet during your bodybuilding days, did you change a lot your diet? Not that you still eating six times a day, or you 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 are over that phase. <laughs> so I'd say, um, funny enough, I was doing the four to six meals a day, even through my powerlifting days. But up until uh, halfway through my whole time doing strongman, uh, I met Patrick Brennan, uh, some fashion yep, yep. therapist. Yeah, he um, he really enlightened me on the whole aspect of intermittent fasting. Um, what having proper protein and fat content can do for your recovery and strength levels. And um, even during my super heavy lifting, one of the last competitions I was getting ready for, I was doing a 24 hour fast um, like once a month. Wow, that's and crazy. I even made personal records in the gym after fasting for 24 hours. Wow, but that probably was after your body got used to, right? Because it is probably it probably was not easy on the first time that you try. No, it wasn't immediate, but um, no, but within the year that I was uh, messing with all of that type of uh, you know tr uh, different nutritional planning, that uh, that made a huge difference for me in regards to my cognitive ability for sure. I realized, um, or I really felt that during that 24 hour period of fasting and then going in to do like a max overhead press, um, I had never felt more capable. I didn't feel this incredible bloat in my stomach. I That's where I learned more than anything that the food slows me down so much if I try to overeat and I don't allow it enough time to digest. Um, having a fully empty stomach, you're working only off of what you've got in you. And um, that was something that fascinated me that I was able to really perform that way. I don't uh, guide anybody in that type of nutritional thing. That was purely for myself. But um, I, I was really impressed with the, how effective um, intermittent fasting, especially for 24 hours regularly, could could do for me as far as recovery goes and strength gains. Did, do you still do nowadays? Uh, no. Absolutely. Like um, I'm not 24-hour fasting, but I do intermittent fasting daily. And 24-hour um, fast... If I do them regularly, I really start to lose a lot of weight and that affects your strength. Like it, it wasn't permanent for sure. But uh, as long as you manage your calories. But there was one time uh, during my, um, was it during 2020 actually, in uh, mid 2020, I was doing fasting once a week, 24 hours uh, for 10 weeks straight. And I went from like 198 to 180. Wow. And in my, my endurance, my cardio for jujitsu and my agility was incredible. I felt so fast. I could be so explosive jumping over the back and doing whatever was, you know, necessary in the moment. I, I just felt capable. It was perfect. Interesting. Interesting. And, and what do you consider intermittent fast uh, as far as hours? Is 12 hours intermittent fast or got to be some sort of threshold? Well, for me, basically, uh, what I, um, mine was I wouldn't eat till noon 
and then I would stop eating around nine, so before bed, essentially. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. Yeah. That's kind of what I go by right now. Mm-hmm. So you don't have breakfast properly, right? No, and uh, also because partly because of schedule, so it really works on that end for me. Okay. Yeah. But when you are intermittent fast, you can still drink water, right? Oh yeah, no, that's actually absolutely one thing that makes you succeed at a 24 hour fast so easily. Hydrate yourself, make sure that you're getting electrolytes while you're fasting. And mm. it is a breeze. Maybe the first time you do it, it would feel terrible because you're so acclimated to eating, you know, every few hours. But uh, anybody that is willing to try a 24 hour fast, just get an electrolyte powder, a zero calorie one, that will take you through the day perfectly. Great tip. Yeah. All right, just to wrap up, uh, Diego, I also talk about the work that you do on the table um, because I know that you, you've been doing that work as well. What it is and what is the goal of that work? So yeah, what I uh, eventually became certified in, thanks to one of my mentors, Patrick Brennan, was a fascia stretch therapy. And basically what that is, is uh, that's essentially what actually was like the catalyst to what changed my philosophy, my ideology, and my knowledge base on mobility, nutrition, and uh, just uh, strength in general. But um, your fascia itself is just, a, as it's said in text, collagenous network. It's made up of collagen. It surrounds your entire body. It's what connects your nervous system to your muscles. In basic anatomy books, they'll tell you your muscle connects to this tendon, connects to this bone, and yada, yada. When in fact, it's actually your fascia that connects all of that together. It's in between the bone and the muscle. It's surrounded over it. And basically on, in fascia stretch therapy, what we do is we lie you down on a table and we'll put you in specific angles of range of motion. And with your breath, you'll be able to allow us, we're not forcing anything, but we'll be able to fall into a further range of motion. Say if I have your leg and I, I bend your knee, I bring it across your body and you're lying on your back, I'll lean on that leg. And with your breath, with some traction taken out, we'll be going further, deeper, stretching your hip out, you know, the whole glute max, glute medius area, and that lower back, getting that area to go into a further range of motion, purely by being able to allow the uh, person on the table to breathe while we put just slight pressure over the area. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I remember done that with Patrick uh, yeah. in the past. And if it was really painful in the beginning until I fully uh, allow him to work because sometimes you contract instead of relax. And that's, uh, yeah, that's where the pain can happen for sure. Yeah. But no. it, it is it is super cool. I mean, after you finish, you feel way more loose. Uh, you, feel, you feel great. Yeah, it's, it's what a sensation. That's actually uh, that sensation in itself, along with the breathing is what um something i like to expand on real quick that's what i then realized with a lot of what i do for myself and for my clients that's basically what allowed me to enhance the stability of my body and not incur injury so much was actually how i learned how to breathe mm. because fascia stretch therapy allowed me to learn uh the way when you have the client fully trust you on the table and you, um, you take them through, through a full inhale, they expand their belly. That's internally expanding their diaphragm and their psoas muscle. Do you know about how they connect in the lower back? No, 
go ahead. Well, basically, um, you have your diaphragm, sits at the bottom of your rib cage, like a parachute. When you inhale, it presses downwards, creating that internal cavity of pressure. And your psoas muscle actually intertwines against your lower back, mid back area with your diaphragm. Your psoas connects from your lower back to the tip of your femur. So those muscles are directly responsible for your posture, among other things. But those yeah. two right there inherently. And couldn't tell you how many people actually have very dysfunctional psoas muscles. That causes a lot of postural issues. That whole lordosis thing you see in a lot of people, mm -hmm. a lot of times that's their psoas just being, it pulls downwards. So it's pulling that spine in. And that's what creates a lot of that pressure. You stand up for a long time. You're not thinking about holding your stomach in. Your pelvic bone falls forward. So that's what uh, lifts the tailbone up, compressing the lower back. And a lot of times people just stretching their lower back don't receive a lot of benefit from it because a lot of times it's an internal muscle that's so as not a show muscle. You can't see it, but it is absolutely vital to our internal balance and awareness. And how that correlates to breathing is that I realized um, in particular, I have one client, 80 years old, Charles. He, um, he's been taught a certain way to lift uh, throughout the last few decades of his life. And he would eventually, he would get gassed out just doing a uh, leg abduction standing mm -hmm. after 10 repetitions. I and mean, he would physically be unable to breathe. So like that's wow. how kind of like far gone he was. And I believe he was like 73 or 74 at the time. And um, now what I eventually realized was that he wasn't actually experienced in knowing how to breathe through his belly and increasing pressure diaphragmatically down into the obliques and the abdominals. So that's one thing that I started educating him on. I started expanding on that with the rest of my clients and like flipping a switch from Charles being unable to stand on one leg with a gun pointed to his head to save his own life he is now um, lunging. He is marching, being able to not fall over. I mean, his age has reduced because he has now understood how to breathe correctly. He is able to move a heck of a lot more functionally now with less stiffnesses in, in his body that we know inherently come with elderly individuals. But with him, it's, it's been a night and day transformation in regards to his overall movement quality his quality of life is improving for the fact that he knows how to breathe better now. Wow, that's super cool, man. Uh, congratulations for, you know, uh, unleashing uh, his yeah, potential. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Diego, thank you very much for your time. It was a great conversation. Uh, I hope to see you soon, my friend. Absolutely, we'll have to get a roll in soon. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right, you're All right everyone. Thank you very much for tuning in to the podcast and see you again next time.